Machute Mate recognizes the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and any indigenous elders of other communities who may be listening today. We stand in solidarity in their struggle towards the colonization and land back. Buenas, mi gente. What is good? Machete Mate, back with a current events episode. Thank you for your patience, fam. Scheduling has been inconsistent, but y'all should know that that's just part of the Machete Mate DNA, <laughs> along with all the um, technical difficulties. You should just know it's just part of who, who we are, right? We, we wouldn't be us that's without right. them. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. Um, there's been the usual shit, but I think, um, and I'm sure you'll agree, um, T, the biggest thing was the DSA convention, which took a bit of a toll on Austin. So he's on a bit of a deserved life hiatus for another few weeks. Um, so shout out to the Caudillo of DSA. Um, <laughs> much deserved rest, brother. Like, take your time. Like, you don't know, rush, homie. Um, we were trying to get a special fill-in, a veteran of the show, but um, we're playing it safe since everyone is a bit time poor. So we don't want to, like, have to rush things or, um, again, with our technical difficulties, cut into the times that we can all devote to this or whatever. So um, it's going to be me and T today, which it's Lee and T, the homies, the the, the dream team of the, of the team. Anyway. That's right. Um, That's right. Also, we've had a, an incredible response to our last release, the Comer Conversation with Andres Pertierra. Um, his almost insider perspective on Cuba was, is incredible. Um, his is an insight that we value greatly on matters relating to Cuba, so we were fortunate to have him on. If you haven't listened to it, please check it out. Um, what else? Um, the, the other day, we celebrated our first book club hangout and discussed the intro to Building the Commune um, podcast and book club. It's it's called Practice. Um, Praxis. Um, look it up. Um, no, but in all seriousness, <laughs> it was really dope hanging out with the uh, with um, some of the Compos Oficiales and talk about one of our favorite formational texts and just shoot the shit um it's captained expertly by t and it's open to all compas oficiales so to participate head over to our patreon and extend your solidarity um you also gain access to the after dark episodes in the discord community you also and i cannot express this enough i keep saying it people think i'm joking this will bring me one step closer to being a stay-at-home dad which is my fucking life dream um, it also brings me one step closer to affording a $3 million West Hollywood mansion, but um, that's a different story. <laughs> um, but in saying that, shout out to our newest compas, Jembo Bean, Catherine, Justin, Connor, Dez, Super Comrade Ron, Carlos, and Guy. Anyway, I'm Leroy, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land um, in so-called Melbourne, Australia, and joined by, of course, the homie T. What's good, dog? <sighs> Oh, man, you know, I'm glad to be back at it. You know, uh, it's like you said, it's been kind of difficult uh, finding time to record for a number of reasons. Uh, Austin, obviously involved with his DSA stuff, um, kind of a I mean, we'll probably have an after dark one of these days in the future about about some shit, because um, obviously we've had comrade conversations with some good homies and I'll just leave it at that. And then obviously you know, you're a family man. Um, you also have a pretty, sh- you also have a shit job. 
I have a shit job. I I don't want to complain more about work because it's it's almost becoming a theme now that every time we open up an episode, <laughs> I start moaning and whining about uh my work schedule. But suffice it to say, it's uh, it's not fun. But other than that, man, I'm I'm happy. You know, I got a roof over my head. I got a full belly. I got a loving partner. You know, I I, I really don't have much to complain about. Cute, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. No, but what could be more Marxist than complaining about work, man? Like that's at our fundamental core, <laughs> our entire ideology is based on complaining about work, man. So it's all well. Good. That's why that's why I I make it a point to shit as much as I can on the clock. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, that's incredible, man. No, same shit. No, same same here. Um, but kind of different. Well, you're at work twenty five thousand hours a day. We're actually again in a fairly strict lockdown here in Melbourne. And even within that, like me and my family, we've had to quarantine just because um, my wife and her sister were at a, what what they label as a tier one exposure site. So a tier one exposure site here means that um, someone who was positive and infectious visited a certain like location. Um, and that place is then deemed like a, a tier one exposure site. My wife and her sister were there around the same time that person was there. So we've had to go into a strict quarantine. We had to get tested. We can't leave our house for 14 days. On day 13, we had to get retested. Um, we all tested negative officially, but we still have to go through with the 14-day quarantine. And on day 13, we have to get retested and make sure like, you know, we're still negative. And then on that 15th day, then we're good to go. So that expires this Thursday, my time. Um, so just another couple of days. It's Sunday now, so just another days, yeah? So I was going to say, you know, not to interrupt, but could you, you know, we talked a little bit about lockdown and quarantine and what that means in Australia. Americans have this weird perception or U.S. Americans have this weird perception that we've experienced lockdowns and quarantines, but we really haven't. We really haven't. Could you, could you talk, like explain a little bit uh, about, you know, some of the, what the rules are of a lockdown and a quarantine down in Australia? Cause y'all motherfuckers had like, Y'all got some real shit. Yeah, it's always, it's, I don't know if frustrating is the word or if like hilarious is the word. Anytime I see p- people in the US complain about locked or talk about, yeah, in this most recent lockdown, we've been locked. You motherfuckers have not been fucking locked down at all, like at all. Um, so right now, because uh, cases are spiking because of the ineptitude of the New South Wales government, um, we had zero cases for months here in Victoria. And then someone from New South Wales sneaked over the border who was, they were positive with like the Delta variant and now it's exploding again. Um, so the last couple of days we've gone into a really strict lockdown like we were looking at last year. Um, so basically what does that mean? It means we can't travel more than five Ks for any reason other than like proper essential reasons. So like doctor's appointments, getting medicine. Um, if you have to, if, if you're essential work and you have to go to work and it's more than five Ks, then you, you can go, but you need a, a, a permit. And if you don't have that permit, um, if you get pulled over by the cops, it's like something like a $20,000 fine for you and like a $100,000 fine for the company that you work for. It's, it's something absurd, which is another conversation to have because I'm all for lockdowns because we like the only way I see our society going forward is if we can, you know, beat this get past it so we don't have to keep going to snap lockdowns but over policing the policing measures are putting in place i don't think is is the way you know what i mean they just need to be like forcing us to stay home and then paying us the paying us is the part that's that's lacking you know what i mean um 
But yeah, going back to what I was saying, you can't leave for 5Ks unless it's for those reasons. Um, you can go set the exercise for, I think, an hour. Um, where again, within that 5Ks, only one person per household can go to like the, the shop. So like to the supermarket, whatever, um, within like an hour window. Um, mass indoor and outdoor, outdoors is mandatory. Um, the mass thing was probably the one lingering thing, even after like we got to the zero cases and like all the other restrictions were were lifted. The mass thing was probably the one that was kind of held on to. Um, so little by little, they started um, kind of rolling back the restrictions with the mask. So before you had to wear it at all times, then you didn't have to wear it indoors. Then you you didn't have to wear it, blah, blah, blah. And we got to a point where they actually had lifted. It goes, it's optional. We highly recommend, but you don't have to. But then like a couple of weeks later, it started exploding again because the people came over from New South Wales. New South Wales is a fucking shit show. Like here in Victoria has been really, really strict. Um, New South Wales, they've been having six, seven, eight hundred cases a day, which for like if you look at like the population proportions here, like the population scales in Australia is, is huge because we have very densely populated wide open spaces, but then very densely populated cities. So six, seven, eight hundred cases a day is it's a lot. Um but Glasbury Jicklian, the premier of New South Wales, being part of the um, Liberal whoa, Coalition, the right wing. Whoa, whoa. What's that name again? Her name is Gladys Berejiklian. Oh fuck! She's man. a fuck. It's he's a fucking clown, man. It's I don't even want to get into it, man. Um, but speaking of, we, we were talking a little bit like off camera, like in the chat, or whatever. Like there have been massive like anti lockdown, anti vax protests uh, yesterday or the day before, like whenever it was, and like it's. It's incredible seeing, and we talked a bit about it as well, like what we're seeing is that slow burn right-wing radicalization happen in real time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I, I think it's different here than it is over there because over there, like y'all over there are like just these conspiratorial minded, like motherfuckers taking like deworming, whatever, like just based on this idea of, you know, we're American, we're free to, you know, freedom, blah, blah, blah. Here, that's not really a thing. It's sort of creeping in. A lot of it, like, because of the big American influence, it's sort of creeping in. It's more of a slow burn. So you're seeing people who are, would have otherwise been okay with the lockdowns because, oh, this is what we need to do to get past it. But, like, they have lockdown burnout. So they're like, oh, I need to have a business. Um, you know, I need to make money. And I'm tired of being locked down. I'm tired of that blah, 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 which is what I'm saying. Like, we need to lock down. And instead, of, and like the way of reinforcing it, instead of being like, let's give everyone robust like payments weekly to stay home, you know, so they're, they, they, they're not starving. All they're doing is increasing police presence or like doing doing that shit. So, which is just creating like this confrontational thing between the people and like the state, which is further radicalizing people to this like right wing idea of like it's us against the man without any actual material analysis of their conditions. When there's a very, very strong material conditions that can be played to, to, I don't know if placate's the right word, but to actually deal with the situation and get us over the line, get us to the other side, which is not happening. And the ASIO, the like the the national sort of intelligence community, has officially called like neo Nazis and right wing extremism like a proper problem and something to like to look at, because what you're seeing is the marriage between like these lockdown protests, the anti vaccine movement, and fucking neo Nazis, because now they're riding this wave and using it and like oh you know the state they're you know it's a conspiracy and blah blah blah. And now it's becoming that QAnon conspiratorial thing. It's always been there like like below the surface, but now it's starting to explode. Like I was telling you, like 
if you go to these protests, you see just as many American flags as you see like Australian flags. So that that should be a that should be a red flag for you right there, man. It's it's incredible. That's so fucking ridiculous to me. Like I I cannot that is just blows me the fuck away. Like basically the American flag is just like a universally recognized symbol of reaction. Ex- <laughs> like exactly right. It's it's like what what did you just say like off camera? Like as much as our movement's international, their fucking movement is international as well. You know what I mean? Exactly. For real, for real. Like, I mean, and it bears repeating. You know, it, it's ironic and people don't understand it, but nationalists in different countries love making common cause with each other. They love doing that. Even even the first iteration of fascism in, in the 30s and 40s was international. Hitler and Mussolini backed Franco uh, during his uh, uprising uh, in Spain. It's it's always been an international movement. After the war, uh, the uh, pro-Nazi elements in the Vatican helped spirit away uh, fascists right. down to Latin America. You know, it's always been an international movement. That that's that's right. Um, anyway, we could be here talking about this shit because it's just fucking. It's, yeah. it's, it's 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 a clown show. It's clown shit, man. It's clown shit. But anyway, we'll get back on track. Um, but real quick with um headlines before we get into it. Uh, speaking of protests. This past week, Puerto Ricans have had dueling protests, um, not at each other directly. Um, there was an unfortunate, sizable one in Puerto Rico that convened at El, Cap- El Capitolio, which is the capital building in San Juan, in protest of what is known as um, Perspectiva de Género, or like gender perspective or education in schools. It was a fucking crystal fascist celebration of transphobia. Um, the other manifestations were pro-independence ones across a few cities, not only in Puerto Rico, but also in the Metropol. I think that one was like eight or nine cities across the U.S. I think it was D.C., New York. I think there was one in like Michigan, Florida, maybe Texas. Pretty, pretty good ones. Like obviously the ones we want to see happen. But the other one, it was is it's exactly what you expected. It was a bunch of like far right, crystal fascist transphobes. You know, no, not a single mask in sight. Talking about how like you know. You know, I'm the, as a parent, I'm the one that should be educating my kid and blah, blah, blah. And this all fucking bullshit, um, which um, bears repeating that um, two Democratic senators, if we become a state, <laughs> not not so not so sure about that. Not so sure about that. Um, but yeah. And one thing we need to be careful as well. And we've talked about it before is the um, Proyecto Dignidad, who is that crystal fascist right wing party. They have that one senator, um, Reyes de Bebe, who is a right wing odious human being but supports independence for puerto rico so we got to be very very careful when we talk about the type of independence that we're trying to build for puerto rico we're not looking for a right-wing fascist fucking independence who's who she's doing it just you know is one of those provocative sort of positions that she can take that's part of the why she's doing it but we need to be very careful about like how we go about it Exactly, exactly, man. And, you know, we we were sounding the alarm about them um, at the election. We were talking about, like, holy fuck, right-wing independence. Because, again, in Puerto Rico, independence traditionally has been a perceived as a left-wing, as the most left-wing position you could take on the status. You know, you had statehood, which was the conservative right-wing position. That's right, American-based liberals. Statehood is the right-wing conservative position. You had the middle-of-the-road position, the Commonwealth, or you know, the uh, fucking um, the fucking Commonwealth um, or uh, the Association. You know, they 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 rebrand every generation. Whatever the fuck, man. Whatever the fuck. 
exactly. Well, no, they rebrand every generation is what it is. Um, and then you add independence, right? Yeah. But this new phenomenon, it, like you said, you know, it, it kind of brings home the fact that even independence itself, at the risk of sounding controversial, even independence itself is not sufficient. Independence is a step. Independence is a step towards exactly a free... Right. In, you know, a free and, and uh, a liberated Puerto Rico. We believe that Puerto Rican uh, liberation and equality and, you know, empowering the working class and oppressed peoples, we believe independence is necessary for that. We're not going to get a socialist Puerto Rico without an independent Puerto Rico. But an independent Puerto Rico doesn't necessarily mean um, that we get those things. It's a necessary step for, for these right-wingers uh, they're they're trying to capitalize on it and use it to you know build support uh, uh, for their own odious bullshit. Yeah, hundred percent. I'll just say one more thing and move on because again, we could be stuck in Puerto Rico for the rest yeah. of the day. Yeah, that's a recording. We made the mistake again. Um, you're you're exactly right because the one pushback we always hear about from like statehood supporters goes, "Oh, you get independence, you think all the problems will be solved?" No. Absolutely not. That's when the problems really begin. That's when the process actually begins. That's a step one. And if you look at independence movements across the world, like a lot of them tend to be, you know, left wing movements. But there's uh, there's very big right wing threads through a lot of them. Like you look at um um in, in uh, Catalonia as a strong right wing yeah. like element to that, and um the Quebecois movement as well. Very strong right wing movements within that. Um. Leganord, Leganord in Italy got its start. Oh, you know, man. the lead, the leading yeah. far right party of Italy got its start as a northern secessionist movement. Yeah, one hundred percent. But yeah, so we got to be very, very careful when we say we want independence and like how we go about doing that. And um, anyone listening to that needs to be very, very clear on what we're saying as well, because we're fucking right. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. Um, Ex-Argentine president and all-around piece of shit Mauricio Macri took part in smuggling arms to Bolivia during the 2019 coup. Um, in an address, current president Alberto Fernandez said, quote, the official documents found in recent weeks give an account of facts that reinforce the timely denunciation. Macri ordered and directly organized a smuggling maneuver through the police. The new evidence also shows that former chairman of the Council of Ministers, Marcos Peña, ex-former first minister Jorge Fauri, and former Strategic Affairs Secretary Fulvio Pompeo, Pompeo, another fucking Pompeo, took part in the crime. So basically, when the coup was taking place in Bolivia during the thing, Macri and his goons were smuggling arms, first of all, to secure the Argentine, the Argentine um, embassy there, but also to the people who were actually doing the coup and shit. So um, we told y'all he's a piece of, he was a piece of shit. Um, and we have Alberto Fernandez now, who's, I mean, he's handicapped by a lot of things, just like any other leader in South America, but Chirazil, again, when we talk about this shit, an international movement towards the, you know, right wing reaction, this is what the fuck we're talking about. Um, but speaking of the coup on Thursday, the office of the United Nations high commissioner for human rights, welcomed the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary fuck group of independent experts report on human rights violations against the Bolivian people during um, Janine Añez's coup-born regime in 2019. So what's really interesting, so this report came out basically, and what it said was, this was a fucking coup, like there were crimes against humanity that were, that were perpetrated. But what's interesting is like this commission who came up with this report started like a month after the coup. So by all intents and purposes, it was something that was done in collaboration with the coup government. But then the report came out. It was like, yeah, no, this fucking coup government was a fucking coup. Um, they're shit. And now even the United Nations are recognizing that 
like what exactly it was. And we have to remember, like there was the the massacres of Senkata and 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 I think it was Sawana, where they were just open fire on like protesters and shit, who like assassinated, like murdered like protesters, you know, unarmed protesters and shit. Um, now you also have Jenny Nanez, who's still in prison, um, crying foul, talking about how she's sick, that she can't, you know, conditions and this and that, whatever, like she can get fucked. And um, one thing that we talked about, you know, I mean, UT just before was the fact that like all these motherfuckers are like, like complicit. And it's, it's, it's like, and she's just a patsy for this and that she's sort of, you know, the fall person for this. Um, but even in saying that, I think the other day, if I recall correctly, like they're bringing charges against Carlos Mesa. Carlos Mesa was sort of that centrist, elder statesman, sort of um, moderate person that was running in, in the in the election, but was also like siding with like the 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 fucking crews and shit. Um, charges are coming up against him, so fuck everybody involved in here. Um, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that, or we could just carry on, man. I think, you know, it's interesting because following up on your Patsy line, you know, she she had never been in full command of uh, of of the government. She she kind of fell into the role in in truth be told. She she her rule was always unstable. Uh, It honestly she gave off the vibe of of being almost like a transitional uh, caretaker right wing leader till, you know, the real dictator was about to come in. But Obviously, you know, they failed, which is fantastic. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It was Murillo and company pulling the strings behind the, behind the scenes. But um, everyone's getting their um, comeuppance, which is good. Um, and we say that as, the, as abolitionists, but nothing warms our hearts more than seeing this shit. Anyway. Yeah? You're going to say something or not? Nah? Nah. I mean, it's, God, it's rough, man. It's a, it's a hard question. Abolitionists are better than I am. That's all I'll say. Yeah, 100%. Um, anyway, we'll keep the ball rolling with our main story. So we'll start in Peru. And what have we always said about Peru? Castillo being elected, inaugurated is fine and all, but it's all going to come down to how the traditionally right-wing Congress deals with his existence, his mere existence, especially given their behavior in recent years with the impeachment of um, Kuczynski, the coup of Iscarra, the self-appointment of Merino, then the constitutionally appointed Sagasti, and now the democratically elected Pedro Castillo. Um, that's five presidents in, in as many years. And it's funny because we were meant to record this episode the other day, but had to postpone because, again, life and shit. Um, but I had prepped this whole story about um, what was going on. And then maybe an hour or two before we were meant to record the story got immediately dated. So like we, one of the things that we always talk about is how a lot of our stories get dated immediately because that's just how, that's how Latin America rolls. Um, originally, we were going to say right on cue they've started their shit. As with anything Castillo has done or will ever do, his cabinet picks caused a bit of controversy in polite capitalist society. Um, none less than 85-year-old foreign affairs minister Hector Bejar. And who is Hector Bejar? Bejar is a renowned leftist author, academic, a lawyer, I think, an artist, an all-around badass. Having been a member of the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, of the National Liberation Army, which was a short-lived guerrilla group in the 60s. Some of the members reportedly went on to fight and die with Che in Bolivia, so... They're all sort of connected. Um, Legit motherfuckers. Legit. Yeah. And this would come back to haunt Behar as well as we're about to see. Um, so you can imagine how everybody was feeling about this guy in deeply right-wing Peru. Um, Congress wanted him to be questioned before the Senate on a bunch of shit like explaining his position regarding Cuba, um, having personally known Che and Fidel. Um, so that's, just, that's a sin in itself. Um, his proposal <laughs> that Peru leave the Lima group. 
Um, he has refused to call the Bolivarian government authoritarian, which is a, is a satanic sin for these people. So they want him to explain himself. Um, they want him to justify his proposal to strengthen UNASOR, given that previous governments voted to leave. And last but comically not least, they want him to define actions to fight 21st century socialism. Um, if, if, um, if, and I repeat, if they weren't happy um, with his answers, they could, at that time, they could legally vote to censure him and then bring impeachment um, proceedings, which is why I say if, because no matter what the fuck he said, it was going to happen anyway. And again, um, that was the original story we were going with, and I had to change it to the past tense because Behar resigned on Tuesday among mounting pressure after a video service of him suggesting that, although he couldn't prove it, that Shining Path was backed by the CIA and that the Navy took part in terrorism as well. So the Navy and the right-wing media lost its shit and immediately attacked him. Eventually, Walter Ayala, the defense minister, eventually caved and joined the rebuke until Behar resigned, which is the first domino to fall in this whole thing. Um, and I can't emphasize enough that this is one thing that we've been saying since the beginning that man getting Castillo into power is great is going to come down to the behavior of the congress the deeply right-wing congress who controls everything you know what i mean which is why it was it's such a it's such an imperative thing to get the constitution changed because a lot of these powers that they're exercising are enshrined in the constitution because all the shit they're doing like we we know we know it's shit we know it's sneaky we know it's like a fucking clown show we know what's going on but they're legally doing it. They're, they're going through legal channels and making it happen. Right. It's the power of, of the what is called the con, uh, constitutional coup. Uh, that is a common concept. Uh, it's, a, it's a discussed political phenomenon in the region. I think it's, it's really unfortunate that he resigned, frankly. Um, if we recall when Austin came back from his trip down there after meeting with some of these folks... He mentioned that, you know, a lot of these people who won office, who were organizers and activists uh, with the party were political neophytes. They were very new. Yeah. If anything, they were they had mostly had been involved in social movement work or in trade union organizing. They had not been in elected office. This was this is truly a an elected government of of regular working people. Right. So that inexperience. You know, they the fact of the matter is, is that when you have a controversy like this, you know how you beat it? You say fuck you to your opponent and stick it out. That's how you beat it. Now, it was clear that there was division in the cabinet with the defense minister coming out and be like, oh, you know, it's wrong to both sides. This he was honestly that defense minister probably got some phone calls from the already seditious and mutinous uh, Peruvian military high command, uh, probably freaking out about it. But I mean, overall, the cabinet is still a strong one. Um, I think that, you know, to your point and something that we've discussed is that, you know, the Congress is the problem because, again, the, though the Peruvian Congress has, you know, traditionally been pretty divided, if there's one thing they always uh, will do is unify when they feel like their privileges, their powers are under threat. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is, um, for the Allende coup, it was the Navy was the first group to like really push back and like back the coup against Allende. And second of all, it's I don't know about you, but it's it's kind of scary that we have a military 
pushing a government to act and not a government pushing the military to act. Like, you know what I mean? Like, basically, right. you have even, and it was just one, basically one branch of government coming out and saying, fuck this guy, we can't have this. And next thing you know, a government minister resigned. You know what I mean? That's, that's some shit to watch, which is, um, not great. Not great. And don't underestimate the power of Peru's reactionary press. You know, they, they, something that is common also, you know, in Colombia, or at least it was for quite a while. Uh, anytime any left winger seemed to gaining in influence, they would start scaremongering about the FARC, right? So they do that in Peru too. Anytime, I mean, they did it during the election. They accused uh, uh, Pedro Castillo of having Shining Path connections. That that's what reactionaries do. They will constantly, you know, there's a phrase in America or in the United States called "waving the bloody shirt." right so that's that's what this is this is them waving you know they're saying that there's a specter haunting peru the specter of (laughs) gonzalo (laughs) exactly right and what's interesting is like the reaction to um him suggesting that maybe and even his quick goes look i can't prove it but like what i'm seeing what i'm reading you know what being around the time it looks like the ca might have been back in the shining path which i'm not going to speculate on or whatever but i think the reaction to that was again this deeply pro-US, you know, Peruvian bourgeoisie who like wants to think that these evil people were like the scum of Peruvian society and not coming from the north, not coming from the US, because the US huh. are the good guys. How 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 dare how dare you implicate the United States in these people's, you know, whatever. You know what again, independent, like we could talk about whether the CIA was part of Shining Path, whatever. But I think it was that, you know what I mean? Because even even if the bourgeois media whatever knows this to be a fact, again their handlers, their the people cutting their checks are in the CIA. So if they allow for you know this idea to get out there, that's bad for business for the CIA. Even though like n- nobody's fucking stupid about the CIA, but the CIA thinks that everybody's stupid, so they're trying to they're trying to quash this um off the bat. But um, well, also that you know there's nothing. Um, I mean, what he did was he did <laughs> he did a both sides. But in the manner, in a manner that they don't like, because normally people do a both sides when they're trying to shit on the on the left. He pulled a both sides and was shitting on the right. And and that's unforgivable. He, he was using he was using a, a, a bougie fucking tactic against them. And again, it was just a statement. I'm hoping that this is not a sign of a lack of will in the in the incoming administration again as we know from uh austin's meetings with uh party activists you know these are real these are real motherfuckers they're they're legit people um but that doesn't mean that uh you know there's there's going to be defeats obviously i think what i what i'm worried about is that this will embolden uh, the reactionaries in Peru, this will embolden Congress that they don't even actually have to go through with an impeachment. They can just make a bunch of noise that they're going to do an impeachment. Yeah. And that's, not, yeah. you know? Yeah. We have this saying in Spanish and my mom always says, um, tener malicia. So to have malice. So if someone is like, if you know someone who's like just a generally good guy who gets taken advantage of all the time, you say, oh, el o ella no tiene malicia. So they, they just don't have that malice. And that's what it seems like Castillo and his people are like, because they're generally good people who want to do good by the people, who generally see the best in people. And like, 
because they don't have that sort of like dog eat dog sort of approach, they are. And again, I, I wasn't Austin will probably have a better perspective on this. Like it seems to me that they might not have that natural inclination to see it other people as well. Um, whereas with the reactionaries, as we know, they don't give a fuck about anybody, right? Like right. it's like Chess said, like the biggest quality for revolution revolutionary is, you know, deep feelings of love. Castillo has that love, his people have that love. Fucking reactionaries don't have that shit. And this is what we're seeing. Like they don't care who they have to step on, whose lives they have to ruin to make it happen. And it's like you said, like they can just imply that they're going to ruin people's lives and that's enough for generally good people to be like, oh, you know what, well, you know, for the sake of the people, for the sake of, you know, the citizens, for the sake of whatever, you know, let us let me do the right thing. And the right thing ends up leading into a deeply fucking fascist Fujimori type military coup, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I suppose that it remains to be seen they clearly do have fight in them. They won an election. Yeah. They have fight because they were involved in the social movements because, you know, Castillo himself was involved in uh, teacher strikes and involved in uh, labor organizing, which, you know, down in South America, man, labor organizing is as real as real gets. You know, people end up dead uh, yeah. pretty regularly uh, just for, you know, uh, trying to, to secure just a modicum of, of, of power and benefits in the workplace. So, I mean, I, they do have that fight. They, it, again, you know, it's just, it's so early, you know, it's yeah. so early. We don't That's know what's going to happen. Um, the, like you said earlier at the beginning of this segment, the key point is that constitution, they have to deliver on the constitution. If, if, you know, we, in other countries, in Venezuela and Bolivia and Ecuador, in these places, delivering on that new constitution was the door. It was the door to, you know, massive improvements in the lives and livelihoods of the working people and the oppressed people and the indigenous people. So I, if they can deliver on that constitution, every mistake, every fuck up, every defeat will be worth it, frankly. Yeah, 100%. And obviously that's the last thing the Congress has because all their powers invested in that constitution, everything that they've been able to do, to all the plausible deniability that they've been able to exercise comes from the powers in the constitution. So um, that's the number one thing Casillo needs to do and needs to deliver on. Um, because again, and we said it before in the past, like, we, I mean, you could have this entire like trot argument about like, oh, well, he's just, a, you know, I'll suck them and he's not really a leftist or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit. As long as he delivers on that one thing, that's going to be revolutionary, and it's going to take Peru and the entire in the entire planet down a different route into the future, which is what they desperately need. Um. Anyway, we'll keep the ball rolling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go Hold ahead. up, like you mentioning, like people doing the purity thing, the trot thing, or whatever you want to call it, the the asshole thing. <laughs> I mean, just no, for real though. Like, I mean, we we now have twenty plus years of how it works in South America. You want to do an advancement? I'm sorry, you need to have an elected socialist government, and you also need to have powerful social movements that sometimes work in tandem and sometimes come into conflict. That's how it works. We've seen example after example. We've seen real tangible victories empowering people. You know, the communes in. Venezuela, the uh, indigenous uh, land rights uh, uh, movements in Bolivia, we we've seen we don't we don't have to pretend we don't have to actually honestly debate this because we can you can point to real 
world examples where you can where you can see this uh this idea put into practice a hundred percent and i'm two points first we talk about this in our book club and we talked about building the commune so please join the the book club because yeah. talk about it number two are you saying it's um it's dialectical are you saying there's this massive con- you know contradictions arrive and arise and is that what you're saying t are you, are you saying that know. entire movement is based on constant conflict and resolving that conflict? I don't know, man. I, I just, I don't know. I just, I'm pointing at what's happened. I'm, I'm... <laughs> just calling balls and strikes here. Just calling balls and strikes. Right, dog. Like, that's all I'm doing. Shit. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll keep the ball rolling, but Peru is definitely something to always keep in, in, in um, you know, keep, keep in mind. Um, but we'll keep the ball rolling into Venezuela. Um, and again, because we are, if we know one thing about the Bolivarian government is that they're just authoritarian, totalitarian, just, you know, evil, like, like, like T would say, just satanic, you know, group of people. Right. Um, and, and in true totalitarian authoritarian fashion, Nicolas Maduro and the Bolivarian government and the opposition had a first round of talks or negotiations and whatever, whatever you want to call it in Mexico, uh, mediated by Norway. Um, and a couple of other groups as well. Uh, this largely came as a result of the whole Guaido fiasco and coup attempts um, and the political crisis starting in January 2019. So what did each side want? The government wanted the immediate lifting of all sanctions, obviously, um, the recognition of all legitimate constitutional authorities in Venezuela and the renunciation of all forms of violence and conspiracy by the opposition. A fourth condition would be the incorporation of all sectors of the opposition to the dialogue process. Um, so basically Maduro wants more of the opposition involved in talks and governance and shit. Like it's, they've, they, they've said this, um, but again, totalitarian, the opposition called for the release of political prisoners and entry of humanitarian assistance, such as COVID vaccines. Um, this happened over a couple of days this time last week. So there's been a couple of days since, you know, they've, they've uh, they adjourned. Um, as a result of the first round of negotiations held in Mexico, the Venezuelan government and the political opposition signed a memorandum of understanding. Um, on Tuesday, the Venezuelan National Assembly unanimously approved this document and made it a binding norm. Um, quote, the opposition recognizes that there is one legitimate government, which is chain, which is chaired by Nicolas Maduro, and we recognize that there is an opposition that wants dialogue and understanding. Everything is in place, and the world recognizes it, um, end quote. And that was a quote by Maduro in response, referring to the one point agreed upon in the memorandum of, of um, understanding. So both sides came together. Both sides agreed. Both sides are relatively the same point. And like you said, they're in conflict. There's a massive contradiction here. They recognize it. They're sitting down to try to um, sort it out. Independent of the United States, independent of Guaido and shit. And it seems like they're making progress. We'll see. We'll see what comes because it's an entire process of just like the first step. Um, but seems pretty, pretty, pretty um, optimistic to me. I, you know, honestly, I don't. With the, where does the opposition go after this? I mean, the Guaido thing was fucking embarrassing. Yeah, it's fucking embarrassing. And like every attempt they've made at kind of like a a street revolution or counter revolution is what it would really be has has failed. Uh, the only reason they have any kind of strength is in the borderlands with Colombia. I wonder why. Um, that's the only place 
where they have kind of like those like true street militants um i think really the opposition is is getting smarter here they recognize that they really have nowhere to go unless they try to work with the government now for maduro what this does it doesn't solve the question of the sanctions because the united states and the united states allies will continue to sanction regardless of what their fucking little running dogs in in country will do yeah um, but what it does do it does take away that rhetorical rhetorical cudgel and you know again <laughs> despite what you've heard venezuela is a democracy they do have elections <laughs> the uh opposition has won elections before uh they had control of the of the part of the congress uh, a few years ago um they the the bolivarians have suffered defeats at the polls the opposition does have mayorships and governorships it does they do exist you know what this the the maduro's gain here is taking away that rhetorical cudgel from the from the opposition right wing now in some respects you might think that you know like because you had you know to take two symbolic examples of the opposition henrique capriles and uh leopoldo lopez uh (laughs) capriles represents in many respects the kind of uh respect like the sort of um kind of moderate face of the right wing in venezuela the the legal uh parliamentary right whereas someone like leopoldo lopez represented represents the kind of insurrectionary uh you know extra parliamentary right wing willing to engage in sabotage in terrorism things like that uh to accomplish their goals now you know someone from the kind of legal right wing uh can then would be they gain something out of this too honestly because then they can say you know we are taking part in the political process we're not going to associate ourselves with uh insurrectionary attempts oh we're not actually you know just the servants of the united states see we're distancing ourselves from the more you know violent elements of the street um i don't you know the real losers of this is is going to be the kind of that insurrectionary extra parliamentary right wing and the united states even though again the united states is still going to impose its sanctions it at least removes that kind of propaganda line within domestically in venezuela and also helps them out regionally now i mean the victory of the left in peru has dealt a real blow to uh the to reaction in in south america and as soon as bolsonaro goes in brazil that's all she wrote man that's all she wrote because then that leaves what that leaves colombia and that leaves ecuador right and ecuador itself has a had had a moment of uh bolivarian uh strength um it just leaves colombia and now we're back into the pink tide era where you know the pink tide has come back um and i think this that's also another reason why the opposition has agreed to these talks when they when venezuela was isolated they felt strong they felt like they could uh they could try to overthrow the government take over do a coup whatever but now now they're the isolated ones where do they go now after the Guaido fiasco, after the uh, fiasco of, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, servicemen being uh, caught in Venezuela? Where do they go? <laughs> yeah. Where do they go? So they have to do this. They have no other choice. If that's this is the only way they they kind of it's it's not surprising that this is the route they go. And it's another example of the dictatorial powers of nicolas maduro how (laughs) venezuela isn't a democracy how venezuela is brutalizing 
and repressing everybody that doesn't have a portrait of Nicolas Maduro in their house that families are actually required by law to pray to. I, I, yeah. I bet you didn't know that. They're actually required to pray to it. Um, yeah. It's just another example of their brutal authoritarian uh, government. Yeah, yeah, one hundred. I agree with everything you said. Um, and I think as well, potentially, this. I mean, like you said, the opposition is doing this because they know what's best for them. They are they're trying to play the game correctly. We have nowhere to go. We're not happy about it, but at least you know, let's try to break bread and see what can come of this or whatever. But I think, in a sense, um, not to play devil's advocate or whatever, um, this could also present a chance for again like plausible deniability down the road so if these talks break down everything breaks down well look we we tried to come to the table you know we 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 gave concessions whatever but like look 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 what happened um but i think you're probably i mean that's definitely a possibility because we we never know what these motherfuckers but i think what you said was probably is probably more of of the reality given everything you said given you know the way things are looking in brazil um the way things are looking in, in um, Peru, um, we didn't mention Chile, but Chile with Boric leading the polls with the new right. constitution and everything. Like they're trying not to be isolated. They'll never go and fully support the the government, or anything like that. But capitalists will always do what's best for their capital. You know what I mean? Even if it is sort of let, you know, let's cut some cheese off now, you know, to save ourselves down the road. Um, but but we never fucking know. But like you said, like the, those sanctions are never going to get lifted. Um, but again, I'm fairly optimistic on the balance of everything. So I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I have another kind of another line of thought just occurred to me that, you know, say this is kind of a left wing critique of having these talks. Uh, a ra- you know, because, again, there are uh, militants in Venezuela, left wing militants who also some of them oppose the government. Um, some of them have the frenemy perspective and it would be, it would be uh, incorrect for us not to consider that what some like that kind of position, this could be perceived as an example of the Maduro go- government moderating the Maduro government moving rightwards in the sense that they're willing to sit down with these fucks. Why should they sit down with capitalists? Why should they sit down with, uh, you know, aspiring compradors? Why should they, uh, negotiate with these people who would not only reverse the gains of the uh, Bolivarian revolution of the last, you know, almost 30 years now, uh, but would tr- attempt to go back, you know, even further uh, back, uh, you know, to pre Caracazo uh, era stuff. Um, you could, you could honestly, you could easily critique the Venezuelan government in this regard. We like, you know, why are you doing this? This is another example of, you know, oh, you know, there were economic changes where, you know, now the government is promoting public-private partnerships, which is a thing that has been happening. Um, this is just another example of that. If you're going to take a kind of like more cynical, uh, extra-parliamentary left uh, perspective, or at least that's that that kind of I could see that interpretation of events as well. Yeah, and what we got to remember, like this isn't necessarily new within the bolivarian you know project right. as well because you know one thing we joke around about is like purging the government every time we come to power right chavez didn't necessarily do that like he left like the media kind of intact a lot of the bureaucrats 
stayed on board. Um, one of the things that we talk about as well is like there's massive conflicts a lot of the times between like the mayors of the party against like the communes. You know what I mean? They were in constant right. conflict. Like so, these elements were always there. Were always allowed to exist. Um, which is which what is what makes the idea that they're these brutal authoritarian dictators like just comical because ridiculous yeah because these capitalist reactionary elements have been present again for the last 30 however many years the bolivarian project has been around yeah what is something that we hear all the time from uh you know you you hear from people on the ground and also in their writings uh both both and i'm talking you know ignoring the right wing or the reactionary opponents because fuck them they can you know they can eat my asshole um <laughs> talking about like left-wing people in in venezuela both supporters of the government and critics of the government they both agree on trying to fight what they call the bureaucracy right yeah. you we, we hear this all the time which is that uh, you know cor- you know corrupted bureaucrats are attempting to stymie or they kind of like they they don't facilitate the building of yeah they don't facilitate the building of the commune um yeah. in a way that they should uh so you know we we see that too they there there's a strong you know one of the most important aspects of 21st century socialism is this critique of bureaucracy yeah 100 percent. and um that reminds me of that the the article you always want to talk about but we never get a chance to where the critique right. is that like venezuela is in sort of this sort of like end stage soviet sort of place where there's like this governmental bureaucratic stagnation and like we're trying to move forward and this these meetings could be a way to sort of move the project forward you know what you know what i mean um it might not be the ideal situation for you know if as you know true bolivarians and true leftists or whatever but at the end of the day our movement is about what's best for the working class for the people for like the right. actual populations of these places if this is going to be what's best for the populations of of venezuela the people of venezuela the the, the brave valiant people of venezuela then i mean i think it's something that we should be welcoming while also supporting you know the bolivarian project and if it does and if it does maybe i'm being too cynical but if it does move the fucking dial on on the uh on sanctions if it does you know maybe the you know and if the united states does ease sanctions because of this then it's a win and that's it yeah. you know that are none because nothing can nothing can change whether a in a more radical you know if you want a if you have a pro-government perspective or if you have a uh extra parliamentary left perspective nothing is going to move on either front with the sanctions still in place yeah 100 percent. again we have to be pro people at the end of the day we have to be the pro, right. pro the people, pro the revolution at the end of the day. Um, but we'll keep the ball rolling. We'll finish off on a, I would say, a broader sort of story. Um, we'll start by obviously mentioning and talking a little bit about the the tragic earthquake in Haiti um, last week. Because, um, you know, like, again, I think you'll agree, T, at the end of the day, you know, we have solidarity with, you know, the, the, the international proletariat, the international working class and everyone in the world. But like, I think in our hearts, Haiti is at the center of that because us being of Caribbean background, like they're the blueprint of 
throwing off the shackles of your like oppressors. You know what I mean? And they're being our sort of geographic neighbors, like from where we're from. Like we feel almost connected to that and they just can't fucking catch a break historically. So they've had another historic, historically bad earthquake. Last I read, there's something like 1,500 deaths at least. And this is a number I got from like a couple of days ago. So I'm sure there's more now. Something like close to 7,000 injuries. Um, And just like with every other crisis in Haiti, you have the vultures descending into Haiti um, trying to make a buck. And um, we talked a little bit about that. T, you want to take it away? Because I know you have some thoughts. Yeah, yeah. You, you. It's funny. You have literally taken the words right out of the mouth, my mouth. Um, down to opening with Haiti just cannot catch a fucking break. They can't, you know. So, you know, hot on the heels of the assassination of that universally despised aspiring dictator Jovenel Moise, you know, the earthquake hits uh, Haiti on August fourteenth. Massive destruction. It's not as bad as, quote unquote, bad as the 2010 earthquake, which was a honestly was truly devastating. Like yeah. over a hundred thousand dead. Like a just an an, an inconceivable amount of destruction. Um, there are over two thousand dead. Uh, thousands more are injured. Um, in a country that's still dealing with the infrastructure issues stemming not only from that earlier earthquake, but from hurricanes, underdevelopment, colonial, just... just fucking, they're, they're still recovering from 1804, bro. Like, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah, no, no, seriously, they really are. And it's, you know, in addition to the endemic callousness of their own, you know, bastard comprador government and the rapacious cruelty of the Western imperialist powers. So, you know, naturally the U S military and the entire NGO catastrophe vultures are swooping in to provide quote humanitarian aid, no doubt predicated on allowing American guns and American power to hold sway over any future government. So, you know, the current prime minister who, might I might I add was made prime minister only a few days before Moise's assassination and currently he's now the acting president yeah. is and I'm going to I'm going to mispronounce the name uh Ariel Henry um, Henry yeah so, Henry yeah um so he got him you know, little point about him he actually got his start in politics as a leading opposition politician against uh, Aristide um, he has always had the backing of the United States, even from his uh, from his jump. That's how we got a start was in, in the 2000 era. Um, now, so he's a political leader that's amenable to the United States, to France, to the West. Um, so, you know, we can't forget, too, that, you know, these. You know, there are just got there's one story I read that some of the you know so-called humanitarian aid isn't being distributed to the people for free. Like oh yeah, have, you're saying yeah, yeah that like so like you know whoever it is, port authorities, whom it can be, are seizing the aid and then now they're selling it in the markets, food and aid to people who just they don't have work anymore, they don't have they don't have homes anymore. People are actually sleeping outside in the rain because they're afraid of this that the structural integrity of their homes is so unstable that they're just gonna going to collapse on themselves so they'd rather they're they're sleeping in the rain instead of like going into their you know fucked up homes and you know and just quick on that note like one of the big things about haiti is they don't have fucking trees because they've had to over the course of like centuries 
cut down their entire forest for charcoal to heat their homes. So they have endemic like mudslides. So not only are they sleeping out in the rain, but they're putting themselves in the direct path of potential fucking mudslides. You know what I mean? Like, again, it's 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 just one thing after another, man. Sorry for nothing. No, 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 you're fine. You know, the Haitians don't the Haitians don't want or need Western help. Now, what I mean by that, at least not the help that they've received from uh, the United States, especially what the Haitians need is to be left the fuck alone, left the fuck alone by Western capital, by Western imperialists. They need to be allowed to determine their own destiny with the kind of solidarity that the entire humanitarian industry is constitutionally incapable of providing. (laughs) You know, there are. Now, there are funds that Americans can donate to. You know, I, I do. I highly recommend following uh, Madam Bookman on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, she has a great account uh, with uh, interesting information about Haiti, as well as some, you know, reputable uh, like fundraisers that are actually going to to genuine, you know, Haitian organizations that are actually helping people versus, you know, like the fucking Red Cross or something. <laughs> yeah. You donate a dollar and they spent maybe a, a fucking uh, a, a dime on actually helping people and the rest of the fucking uh, of that dollar goes to their, you know, administration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, at, <sighs> Haiti is impossible to predict. Um, it's pretty clear that Biden is has a kind of shittier policy than uh, Trump or Obama. It 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 worries me that it might be Clintonian, that it might be like a Clinton policy, which is like some really nasty direct meddling in Haitian affairs. But honestly, that remains to be seen. Um, I, God, my heart goes out, you know, all the solidarity in the world. Yeah. Uh, and just quickly, just going to your previous point there, like we already know that Biden doesn't give a shit because that thing came out a couple of months ago and really cute Haitian Creole. There's a thing basically saying, don't come here. Like, to the refugees, like, oh, like, don't come here. You're talking about, like, people in, quote, our backyard or whatever, you know, as the true humanitarian, you know, empire that we are, whatever. He's literally telling them, don't fucking come. Like, Kamala Harris, when she was in Guatemala, saying, don't come. Like, like she can get fucked. Shut the fuck up. Like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, and, you know, so, you know, another thing that they, that Haiti is a great example of the intersection of climate change imperialism and the legacy of oppressions of the past yeah so you know what what do we see you know i i spent i spent you know the last you know few days looking over you know the recent ipcc reports um their recent assessment and you know with this most recent one i haven't read all of it or i i've only been reading the policy one uh the uh it's like the shortened condensed one it's like 40 something pages it's just a fraction of the full report, which is just hundreds yeah. and hundreds of pages. Um, and even the short person, short version is pretty dense. If you're not familiar with some of the lingo, I don't pretend to be an expert on the climate. Um, but they, they mapped out, you know, what is, what is something that people always love to think about, which is, you know, what is the climate future going to be like? What is the climate future going to be like? Um, so again, some important points about these, about these, especially these international reports is that number one, and I, God, this is the part of the show where I sound like a doomer, where I sound like a fucking like anti-civ person. No, um, just keep it real, man. Just keep it real. Wink, wink. wink. Um, it's 
let's keep it real here. These international reports are conservative reports because they have to get approval from governments, right? Yeah. Governments, especially uh, the major powers. And that goes from everybody from the United States to China. I'm talking about all the major powers have a vested interest in painting as rosy a picture as possible. They just do. You know, what is a, a famous line of our show quoting, quoting my brother? Government's going to government. And this is an example of that. They're, they're going to they're going to go for the most conservative guesses. It's funny, just quickly, like really tangential. But um, our homies that um, it can be done podcast quoted that quote on their latest episode. So it's coming back. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to the homies. Yeah. Shout out to the um, homies. Government's going to government. Yeah. I mean, they are. Government's going to government. And, and, you know, example of that is that these international reports are especially conservative. That's number one. So they're going to under they're going to paint as rosy a picture as they can now this most recent one had five possible scenarios they they mapped out with basically like so under these conditions with this temperature rise we get this all right so i'm not going to go into you know we're pretty close to time so i'm not you know going to go into all of it but i will mention that basically their most optimistic scenarios are predicated on the notion of global cooperation mm right loss yeah 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 damn um if, if you're <laughs> convinced of that just look at what's going on with the plague um it's predicated on on global cooperation and then number two and this honestly is in my opinion and this might be somewhat controversial i think this should be accorded a form this should be considered a form of climate denial is it's predicated on the notion of of uh, carbon capture technology. Now, if you know anything about this, you'll know that carbon technology, carbon capture technology built to scale um, hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> it hasn't been invented yet. Um, so I think, you know, you look around, we've every month now is has been the hottest on record, okay? Every, you know, there was, uh, there was one story you were mentioning, uh, when we were, uh, you know, chatting a little bit before, um, something about, um, what was it? The, uh, it was a river, I think. You were saying the Colorado river? Oh, there, God, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking this up. Um, because I know one thing that I had read in the report or got from the report was that this past July was like the the Arctic had the least amount of ice cover right, right. it had ever had. Right. So, and it looks like we are pretty much guaranteed on track for 1.5 degrees Celsius warning, uh, warming. Um, again, these are the conservative estimates and I don't saying we, what can we do to stop climate change is, is honestly the wrong question because it's here. And you know, if you don't believe it, go outside. Okay. Yeah go outside their heat waves have killed hundreds of people across the world. The, the largest single wildfire in um, the Western States, the Dixie fire, it was the single largest singular fire um, just happened. I, I, I really think that the question people need to be asking themselves is we, how do we adapt? Which again is, is something people are asking, but we know what needs to be done. We actually have, we know, you know, people talk about what a, a carbon capture technology, we, we know what exists. It's called trees. That's a carbon <laughs> capture technology, you know, but, you know, and, and 
it's true too that you know people can kind of overstate the whole like if we plant a tree we solve everything which is true because it's really about uh biosphere restoration especially yeah. you know for me i always think about like wetlands that's the big thing because wetlands will help with flooding and if we're losing arctic ice if we're moving to an a, a era or a time where we're actually going to have an ice-free arctic uh dealing with flooding is going to be huge as we speak right now, there is a hurricane bearing down on New York City and the Northeast, right? We've seen Im we've seen images of the flooding in the subways, the you know, the the fucking sewage and shit. Um and yeah. literally shit. Um we we need to figure out a way to deal with with the flooding and, and it's about biosphere restoration and trying to restore the diversity in in nature, in creation. Um that's really the key to all of this. Yeah, and um, I'm not as well versed in all this as you are, but I think we need to be careful of falling the trap of making, of it coming down to individual choices. Like, oh, if everybody turns yeah. off their lights, if everyone recycles, whatever, it won't hurt. But like, we're talking like systemic issues that need to be addressed. You know what I mean? Like you talked about um, with the biosphere restoration, whatever. Um, as I get more and more into gardening, like I'm learning more and more about like re regenerative farming which a lot of that has to do with like uh, carbon capturing, whatever, but that needs to be, that needs to take place at a scale that's unimaginable that has to tie into, like you said, like global cooperation that we're not going to get, you know what I mean? And you brought up a good point as well. One of the things as well is that we need to be addressing our lifestyles and how we adapt our, you know, our way of lives to these things. And as we're seeing with, with the, with the, with the plague, the big, the biggest reason why we're not getting ahead of this and actually clamping down is no one wants to adjust their way of life to deal with it. No one wants to sacrifice tidbits here, you know, having to go into lockdown for this or that, whatever, adjust the way they interact with people because, you know, fucking freedom, whatever. So no one's, and, and that's something we can see. We can see people getting sick. We can see people, you know, dying. We can't necessarily see temperature rise. You know what I mean? That's sort of, for a lot of people, that's abstractual. So if people are not reacting or like to things that they can actually see, they're not going to be reacting to things and changing the way that they live for things they obsessively can't see with their two eyeballs. You know what I mean? So it's, it. I hate to say it is what it is because it's, for me, it's hard to see us all coming together and kumbayaing and like, you know, getting ahead of it. I, I want to emphasize too that, you know, I, I kind of want to leave, leave off on, on a somewhat hopeful note. The idea, you know, it, there's, it is a fact that people's live, lives, the way we live has to change. Right. And that includes personal choices. Right. So what do people, you know, oftentimes critics of environmentalists will think, oh, you know, you're proposing green austerity, you're proposing lowering the standard of life, you're this, you're that. No, that's not true. What people, what environmentalists are proposing, especially those who are, who come out of the degrowth movement, who come out of the, is, is something we talk about uh, is, is Buen Bavir, right? Good living, the good yeah. living. And what the good living means is not, you know, not everyone, you know, it, it's a way of life that is in contradiction to the old development, uh, developmentalist models that have been proposed in the 20th century, right? Good living means more time for thing for people we love, more time for, uh, 
for for practices that do not harm others, that we can focus on both care work and community, right? Now, you know, this is the part of the show where I sound kind of like, you know, kumbaya-ish, but it, it's about making time for what really matters. You know, we don't have to define ourselves. We don't have to define ourselves by consumption. We don't have to define right. ourselves by our luxuries. We can define ourselves by what we love, by what we care about, about who we care about. And that's what the good living is about. You know, sure, we might not get fancy gadgets every year. Sure, we might not have, you know, we might have to restrict certain things. You know, you might not be able to go to, you know, get fucking fast food every day or something. You know what I mean? But it allows us more time for what really matters in life. So, yeah, it's going to be, you know... Less work is a good thing. And environmental demand, you know, we always like to talk about like how to do political organizing or, you know, like actually policy proposals. Here's one that helps this. My favorite, honestly, is reduction of the work week. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that has to happen is that production and consumption has to be radically restricted. If we're going to do anything, extraction has to be restricted. If we're going to get through this, if we're not going to experience the absolute worst case scenarios that are outlined in those reports, Right. And one of the classic is an old labor demand, which is, a, again, a reduction in the work week. A reduction in the work week is both a labor demand and an environmental demand. It's and this is how we bring, you know, oftentimes people put labor and, and the environment against each other. It doesn't have to be that way. That is a reactionary propaganda line that they fucking pushed on us. Yeah. Reduction of the work week, a fair work week is would be huge. It would give people time to live. Yeah. I mean, I have nothing else to add to that. That's beautifully said. I almost teared up there. It was cute. No, but you're hundred, you're hundred percent correct, man. Like it's, it's balancing out the production because a lot of people like to really pin it on, like just consume less fine. But if we're still producing at the scales that we're producing, right. it doesn't, right. doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Again, it's, individual choices and the things we do as individuals those things do matter but they need to be taken within the context of changing global systems That's that right. have been developed for a very certain reason over the last however many years um but anyway look it's i'm going to try to be optimistic here um but you know it's 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 hard to be it's hard to be though but um we'll see we'll see how we go but we'll we'll probably put a bow on it there for today's show. Um, again, thanks for tuning in, everybody who's tuning and listening to this. Um, again, if you support what we do um, or just want to get access to the, the cool kids in the um, the Discord community, you want access to the book club, the After Dark episodes that we haven't done in like ages, um, we'll, we'll blame Austin for that. Um, consider showing your solidarity on our Patreon at um, patreon.com slash machetimate. Um, it'll, and again, at the end of the day, like we joke around it, but we do really, really do appreciate your listenership, everyone that tunes in. And again, if, if you're not in a financial position to be able to donate to the cause, look, that's more than okay. That's, it is what it is. We, we just appreciate you tuning in and just, you know, supporting this little project that we have going on because we, it is a labor of love. We do dedicate what little spare time we do have to it. Um, just to try to bring information to the, to the masses, I guess. Um, 
what else again thanks to the compass officers who have donated the last couple of days um we do have the chapter one review of within the commune not this week next week yeah like a week yep, from whenever um be, so yeah, that, be yeah, that'll be, yeah eight days from today yeah or from um, time of recording so probably it'll be like a week when you get a week from when you when you listen to this yeah um Last one was really fun, and was really what I really enjoyed. It wasn't necessarily us leading it; we were just as involved as everyone else. Like a couple of the, the like um, Brian came in, had some really good things to say. You know, friend of the show, super fan Logan had a few things in there. It was a really really fun discussion. Um, so yeah, be a part of it. But keep your eyes improved, Venezuela, everything we talked about today. Um, love one another. Take this fucking plague seriously because, you know, I'm pro-lockdown, but I'm tired of being in lockdown. So the sooner we can get past this in Australia, at least, you guys in the United States are fucked. So I don't know what to say to you guys. But at least <laughs> any Australians listening to this, let's get let's get ahead of this and, you know, get back to our lives and stuff like that. But um, with that said, thanks for tuning in. Um, and hasta la victoria. Later, y'all.